Good morning, Evergreen. If you'll open your Bibles and turn with me, we're going to be in Psalm 110, Psalm 110. And despite the fact that we have only seven verses in this chapter, we have a lot of ground to cover still. And the reason why is because I think I mentioned this last week, but Psalm 110 is, okay, it depends on how you calculate it. What's your favorite Bible verse? What's your favorite Bible verse? It might be John 3.16. Talking about, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him will have eternal life, right? There's so many different Bible verses. And, you know, you might be drawn to one as a particular favorite because there's something in it that resonates with you. But maybe another way to gauge what your favorite Bible verse is, is which one practically comes on your lips the most? Which one do you most often mention to people? Which one do you find useful in so many different contexts, in so many different conversations? Well, on that latter, on that latter metric, this is the Jesus's, this is the apostles, this is the New Testament's favorite Bible verse. The New Testament quotes Psalm 110, specifically verse 1, more than any other. And it's not even close in comparison. If you read the book of Hebrews from chapter 1 all the way till chapter 10, almost in every single chapter, Psalm 110 is mentioned. The book of Hebrews is a lot more than just a sermon on Psalm 110, but it's not less than that. And curiously, the text that's focused on so much deals with the day of judgment. Don't you remember last week when we were reading in Mark chapter 12, which is the reason why we're addressing this now, Jesus quoted this text. And he said, who who is this Messiah? When he said, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand. Jesus could have stopped right there to prove his point, but he didn't. He continued that he's going to sit at his right hand hand until he makes all his enemies under his feet or as a footstool. I preached this sermon once before, but not really this sermon. I thought I was going to this week in preparing myself I thought I was going to preach the same sermon that I preached about a year ago. And looking at this text, we do see that Jesus, as as a mediator, he's a prophet, he's a priest, and he's a king, and you see all those elements in it. But I think relevant to our discussion about Mark, and relevant actually to what what Psalm 110 says the duty and the task of the Messiah is, is it's related directly to judgment and judgment day. And I had Robert read Revelation chapter 19 in part, yes, because it quotes verses 5 through 7 in Revelation chapter 19 about the kings of the earth being gorged on by birds, but also a kind of a second point to this is to realize that anyone who thinks that God in the Old Testament was a God of vengeance and then that God in the New Testament was a nice, kind, and gentle God 
They just haven't read to the end of the book. That's the only issue here. But if you read through the entire Bible, you see consistently one God who's revealed, whose character is good, is loving, but is also just. And that's the God who we are going to see in our text today. Let's read Psalm 110, starting at verse 1. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion his mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments from the womb of the morning. The dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and has not changed his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. You will shatter chiefs over, you will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he'll lift up his head. This is the reading of God's holy word. You know, once we get to Mark chapter 13, when we get to that chapter, and I've actually been preparing for it longer than you might think. Mark chapter 13 is all about eschatology, the study of the end times. And that topic has been marked and met with a lot of, of confusion. There's lots of various interpretations, lots of confusions about how things are going to end, and you might have streaming in your head, ah, mill, ah, millennialism, post-millennialism, pre-millennialism, dispensationalism. There's all these different tasks, and it can kind of get confusing, especially since Christians so often disagree with this. I wonder how often that's going to happen. We'll find out. But there's so much confusion on this topic. And I just want to let you know that the confusion does not come from God's word. God's word is clear. Where the confusion comes, see if I can stop that from happening. Where the confusion comes from is ourselves. And while I do not claim, you know, we have this certain thing that happens in history called hindsight bias. We've read our Bibles, and every Christian can see how God fulfilled his prophecy in the past. But it's a lot harder, and I will admit, I do not have 20-20 vision when it comes to what God will do in the future. But that's why it's so helpful to be clear about what the Bible is clear about and what's going to happen at the end. What's going to happen on Judgment Day? And an aid to that can come from looking at this text. See, there's a problem that I've had in dealing, trying to see how I'm going to preach Psalm 110. It's the fact that it's been quoted so often in the New Testament that I have a lot of data to deal with, and it's really hard when you have to deal with a big topic to synthesize it. But the good news about that is, at least for us, is to realize that the Bible, quoting it so often, this text is particularly clear. 
And what do we basically have in this text? We have a picture. We have a picture before the Messiah came of what the Messiah would do. The Messiah, that word is just the same Hebrew word as Christ. We say Jesus Christ. And sometimes we say that so often or so flippantly that we think maybe that Christ is Jesus's last name. It's not. It's his title. It means the anointed one. And what is he anointed to do? He's anointed specifically to save his people and to execute God's judgment. And what do we have in this text but a picture of seeing beforehand this prophecy of what the Messiah would do. And they're told that he will come, that God will set him up on the throne, and that on that throne, he will lead his people, and they will be willing as an army. And he will go into battle against wickedness, and he will judge the world. And it's at this point that it's really helpful to know that the New Testament interprets the Old. Some problems with eschatology or study of the end times comes from trying to look at the Old Testament first and then read the New Testament to see what would happen. But that's backward headed, that's wrong headed and misguided because what we have in the New Testament is a fulfillment of an interpretation of the old. That's the direction we're supposed to be reading in. And when we do that, what we see is that while this text has it neatly pictured as the king comes and the king conquers, that what actually took place in history was the team, the king came and saved his people and separated from that. And what Jesus promised to do one day was to come a second time in judgment. That judgment has not been delayed in the sense of it's not going to happen. That Jesus came to save and no longer cares about judging the sins of the world. No, Jesus still cares about judging the sins of the world. But in his mercy, he has delayed it in the sense that it didn't happen at the same time. Because if Jesus came to crush the heads of sinners in his first com coming... No one would be saved, for all have broken his law. So what we really get here, and the main points that I want you to see here, is I want to convince you that the New Testament, in reading this, says that Jesus Christ, in his first coming, that he has established a present reign, that his kingdom has been inaugurated, that right now he sits on the throne of God as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And understanding that will help us to eliminate a lot of options when it comes to our expectations for what's going to happen in the future. And likewise, as a, just a general framework, is looking at the fact that there is a future judgment. And that judgment day has not yet come. And it remains in the future. That those two things, this present reign of Christ and this future reign, the New Testament says, 
has been accomplished in two separate comings. So then maybe we could pause here. Is this a contradiction? Does the Old Testament present this picture of this one coming and the New Testament picture this effect of Jesus having two comings? You know, Scott and I, Scott McConnell and I went to uh, Pikeville, Kentucky about a couple months ago now. And on the way there, as we were passing through Abingdon, you know what you notice is right now we're not around the mountains. We can't see them. But the further in that direction in southwest Virginia you go, you start to see an image or a picture. You start seeing on the horizon this light blue thing, string that's coming in front of you. It's light blue, and you see these things that you're like, wait, it's not clouds. It actually looks like mountains. And from a distance, it all looks like one continuous mountain range, as if it was a wall. But as you drive in closer to it, what you notice is that what appeared to be a wall is actually many different mountains, many different hills. And that in between, when you stand up on one mountaintop, you see that there are valleys and ravines in between those mountaintops. That one is not contradictory to the other. One is simply a clearer view. That was close. That was close. That one is simply just a clearer view of the other. That as we progress in history, as we have more revelation in the New Testament, we have new revelation that clarifies God's intent and purposes in the old, which should go ahead and give us a red flag that when we want to know what's going to happen in the future, we should first start off with the New Testament and see how it interprets the old. Now let's get into our text. What does Jesus say? He quotes that first verse, the Lord says to my Lord. And I'm not going to go into exactly again how this speaks to the person of the Messiah. It's a Davidic song. Everyone has been in agreement that this is a messianic song. David wrote this anticipating what the Messiah would do. And speaking of the Messiah, Messiah, he says the Lord and the word there, if you notice in my ESV, it's all caps, says Yahweh says to my Lord, and it's lowercase. And the word there is Adonai. And we've already discussed the fact that this speaks to Jesus being the Messiah because David is saying that his Yahweh, the God of the universe, said to David's master, this person who is going to be a son of David. But if you're the master of the king that God has put on the throne, there's only one position higher than you, and that's God himself, which Jesus pointed out. But instead of focusing on who, like I said, we're going to focus on what he's come to do and to see if there's any element or any reason for us to believe that any part of this psalm has already been fulfilled. Well, we can look at that first phrase that Jesus quoted. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Just as the, as the Old Testament, with more revelation, things get clear, it's helpful to realize that this prophecy is nothing new. 
that God would send a king to save his people. We have Genesis 3.15 that points to the promise that God would send the seed of the woman to crush the head of the serpent. And that was kind of vague, wasn't it? And it got clearer over time. And by the time you get to the end of Genesis, we read in Genesis 49, verse 10, that Jacob said to his son, Judah, that the scepter would not depart from the tribe of Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him and to him shall be the obedience of my peoples. And as we keep reading till we get to the end of the book, we have things like this. And the question I want to ask, I want you to ask yourself is, when will Jesus be seated at the right hand of God? As depicted in Psalm 110. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 11, and talking about the priests and their daily sacrifices, says, but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. When did Christ sit down at the right hand of God? When he offered his single, once-for-all sacrifice. And Hebrews chapter 10 continues in verse 13, saying and clarifying what he's doing now, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. So when did Jesus sit at the right hand of God? After he made that sacrifice to pay for the sins of his people, to die the death he des- he, that his people deserved. And when was that but on the cross? There's a sense in which Jesus, when he was crucified, was being lifted up into the air, yes, to die. But it was the start of God putting him up on his throne. But we can continue. Ephesians chapter 1, so that first reference, if you want to double check me later, was Hebrews chapter 10, verse 12 and 13. This one's Ephesians chapter 1. And I preached a sermon on this for Easter, but it's helpful to remind ourselves. Verse 19 talks about the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, which according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ. When? At what moment was the power of Christ demonstrated, the power of God to redeem sinners demonstrated? When he raised the Father, raised the Son from the dead and did what? Seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. So when did Jesus sit on this throne? Once he died on the cross and offered a sacrifice for his people's sins. And after he rose again from the dead. And if we just complete this picture, we can look at Acts chapter 2. Where, following this train of thought, he's explaining what's happening at the day of Pentecost. And Peter says in verse 32, or rather verse 33, that he was exalted to the right hand of God 
having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, which has been poured out on you to this day. What was Peter saying? But the God-man who died on the cross, who rose on the dead, that we have evidence that he was seated on the throne because he's been because after being seated the evidence of this is that the holy spirit was poured out on the world you see this eliminates a lot of options when it comes to what's going to happen in the future if our expectation is that christ is not right now ruling today but one day he will set up his kingdom one day he will rule as king of kings and lord of lords we've missed the mark it also and i'm targeting here specifically dispensationalism which we're going to be preaching i'm going to be preaching through mark chapter 13 so the details of all this we have time to work out so don't worry about it but if you think that christ is for some reason going to set up his kingdom on earth and set up another temple and start back the temple sacrificial system again, your expectations are wrong because Christ being seated on the throne of God was initiated because he accomplished the once and for all sacrifice of his blood. And that's connected to what he says in verse four, that the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You talking to Christ, are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. What do we have here? What well, we have here an explanation that we're told in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 21, that's Hebrews chapter 7, verse 21, that this one, Jesus, was made a priest with an oath explaining this verse. And he makes a contrast saying the former priest were many in number because they were prevented by death and from continuing in office. But he, Jesus, holds a priesthood permanently because he continues forever. See, the thing is, is the difference between old and new covenants here are laid out for us. Before priests lived, they died, and they did sacrifices of animals that were looking forward to what Christ would do. And what Christ came to establish was not just a kingdom, but also a priesthood in which he would pay for his people's sins. Why was sacrifice necessary in the Old Testament? What was God teaching his people back then? Not that the blood of bulls and goats could actually pay for their sins, because bulls and goats aren't the sinners here. We are. What he was painting a picture for them is that God required the payment of life for breaking his law. For Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. And what was happening on that altar in the Old Testament was the blood of these animals. The life of these animals was poured out. Symbolizing a substitution has taken place that God has overlooked their sin. Jesus did that, though, with his death on the cross. When he poured out his blood and he died the death that we deserve, 
and he poured out his blood for our sins. And his priesthood is eternal. We don't have to look for any other priesthood to be established because our sins were once for all paid for on the cross. And unless you think that I skipped a verse there, which I did, there is this weird phrase here in verse 3 saying that your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments from the womb of the morning. The dew of your youth will be yours. What's that do? What's going on here? Micah chapter 5 helps us. And it's in other places, by the way. What happens in the morning? You go to bed at night. Your grass is dry. But if you wake up early enough, you see that on every blade of grass are multiple beads of water. And those water glisten. And it's all of a sudden that it attacks you, that you open up your door and you expect to see the grass like this, not shining. But when you open your door in the morning, you see all of a sudden thousands of little water droplets appearing at night. That's the image that we're given in Micah chapter 5 saying that the remnant of Jacob shall be in the midst of many people like the dew from the Lord, like showers on the grass, which delay not for man nor wait for the children of men. The image here is that God's people would be one in which it would be dew of the morning spread out across the nations like an army, soldiers for Christ. And these soldiers, note, in the beginning of verse 3, are people who offer themselves freely, willingly. What is the church other than this? You see, the church is not just a merely voluntary association. But it is at least a voluntary association. Everyone has come here by choice. Everyone has brought your family here to be a part of Evergreen. Maybe not by their choice, but by your choice. You have sought to worship the true and living God. He has made your your heart willing. And how are we told that he does this in the New Testament? We're told that he does that by his Holy Spirit. Once again, Hebrews chapter 10, you can just go ahead and star this as a good application, interpretation of this text. Because in chapter 10, right after he talks about the Holy Spirit, well, rather, their holy priesthood of Melchizedek that the Messiah is in, he says that the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us in verse 15. For after saying, this is the covenant I'll make with them after these days, I will put my laws in their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. What's the result? What's the result of this sin sacrifice being offered once and for all? He accomplished his people's redemption. What's the result of Jesus standing on the throne of God, pouring out his Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit is no longer restricted to the nation of Israel 
to have followers of him just there. But now we see that that remnant of Jacob is not made up of ethnic Jews. And it never has been solely made up of ethnic Jews, by the way. Read Ahab, oh, Ahab, Rahab and Ruth. No, what we see is that God's people now, the Holy Spirit being poured out upon all humanity, has made people from every tribe, every tongue, willing worshipers. Now everyone has the law of God written on their heart. We don't have to teach people to know who God is. We find ourselves reading our Bibles and believing God because we see the authority of God's word in the text of scripture. And we are a willing army. And it is kind of like all of a sudden this happens, that people come and people bend the knee and follow Jesus Christ. And I would be remiss if I did not also say what these results are. Have I convinced you yet that we are living under the present reign of Christ described in these first four verses? That Christ has been seated at the throne, that he it will reign there until waiting until all his enemies have been placed under his feet, that he has a scepter that goes forth from Zion, that he rules in the midst of his enemies? Is it surprising then that we are Christians in America, in a country that, yes, one point at one point proportionally had more Christians in it than not, but now proportionately has more unbelievers than not? It's not a surprise because he's currently reigning. And it was always going to be the fact that once he was seated, he would rule in the midst of his enemies sending his Holy Spirit out to make people willing to draw them out from darkness into light. Are you convinced of that? How many different errors we can avoid if we just grasped that one fact? But Hebrews chapter 10 notes something that we also need to note. For in laying out all the different things that we should have as a result of this, that we should realize that we have our hearts sprinkled clean of an evil conscience, our bodies washed with pure water. FYI, I think that's referring to baptism and the promises therein in baptism. He said, because of that, let's have a true heart with full assurance of faith. I backed up a little bit, but verse 23, let's hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering for he who is promised is faithful let us consider to stir up one another to good works and love and good works not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of son some but encouraging one another all the more and what does he lead into in the book of hebrews to encourage each other all the more as you see the day draw near and you might be thinking to yourself which day And he says, for if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. But what? What remains the people of God if we continue deliberately sinning, if we don't turn from our sins, if we don't trust in the Messiah to save us? What we have, verse 27 of Hebrews chapter 10, what we have is a fearful 
expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. This is what we have. That we have Jesus is seated at the right hand of God. That he is waiting until all his enemies have been put under his footstool. And the expectation that awaits the unbelieving world, those who do not turn from their sin, who do not trust in God, is the day of judgment, which God has always said was waiting for those who do not turn from their sin. A couple things I want you to note. First thing is we were told that the Messiah had an army of willing soldiers. But who's the one who exercises judgment? Verse 5, the Lord is at your, the Messiah's right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations. It's just as John chapter 5 tells us. John chapter 5 has told us that the Father judges no one, verse 22, but has given all judgment to his Son. Verse 24, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. And the flip side of that, verse 25, truly, truly, I say to you, the hour is coming and is now here. When the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Verse 27, he has given him, the Messiah, Jesus, authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. See, we're told in Scripture, Matthew chapter 10, this time not Hebrews, Matthew chapter 10, to not live in fear of man who can kill the body, but cannot touch your soul. But we are told by Jesus himself, fear God who can kill both body and soul in hell. God's judgment is real. And we have a pretty grotesque picture of it. This future judgment in verses five through seven. But the reality is, is that this is simply a picture of a much more gruesome image. And we have to ask ourselves, why does God get so grotesque? Why does God, in explaining Judgment Day, describe it in such grotesque imagery? Talking in Revelation chapter 19 about flesh gorging on the corpses of those who are slaughtered by the one who's riding on a white horse with the sword of God's word, whose name is King of Kings, Lord of Lords whose name, by the way, is Jesus. Why does it tell us that in such grotesque imagery? It's because sin is grotesque to God. We have that feeling when we hear of people who commit murders, when we hear of mothers who murder their children, unborn children or drowning them in their tubs, when we hear of murders and pedophiles, we have a sense of the grossness of sin. And that's just a microcosm of how God feels about sin. He also wants to show us this disgust 
about how we should feel about Judgment Day. Seeing how grotesque and how horrifying the future is for those who do not turn to Christ, does that not motivate you to zeal for sharing with the unbelieving world that doesn't believe in Christ, that their only hope in life and death is to turn to Christ? You see, I think that we as a church, and I know it, I see it in my own life, that I am often not struck with the reality, the grotesqueness, and the fearfulness of hell and the judgment to come. Imagine if one day the church of Jesus Christ saw the day of judgment for what it is, scary, eternal punishment being held out for people who have done gross sins. Wouldn't we want to go out into the world and convince them that their sin is worthy of this punishment? Wouldn't we want to go out in the world to beg them and plead with them that they might turn to Christ and find their hope in him? What does it say to us? What does it say about us? When we have unfeeling hearts, when we interact with family, with loved ones, with even our neighbor, and are so calloused towards them that we don't warn them of the judgment to come that Jesus himself has promised. It's at moments like these that we have to pray that God will remove this heart of stone from us and give us a heart of flesh, a heart of flesh that's sensitive to sin. Yes, be disgusted by the sins of the world, but don't let that disgust of the sins of the world not motivate you to preach their only hope. Your disgust should lead you to think about the terrible judgment that awaits all those that don't turn to Christ and to beg and plead them to turn to the Savior. You see, this, knowing this, what we see in eschatology, end times issue, is we see that there's a present reign in Christ. Yes, that present reign is real. His kingdom has been established even here on earth. Hence, the Holy Spirit was not poured out in heaven. It was poured out on the earth. But the opposite error also needs to be protected against. The only things that are laid out here for us is Jesus coming to save his people in his first coming, and is coming to judgment in the second coming. There's nothing really in between these. So if your hope is some golden age in the future in which your suffering will be mitigated, lessened, that somehow Christ will be in the future more of a king, more reigning, that right now, yeah, sure, he's reigning, but just over this small group of people, he'll really be reigning in the future. That is a false expectation for what the future holds before us. We expect to live the life that Jesus lived. Jesus prepared his disciples and over and over and over again said, if the world rejected me, he will also, it will also reject you. How many times have we had heard Jesus say that life on this earth, if we're living faithfully, if we're living and as an imitation of the life of Christ will be filled with suffering. 
And that suffering is not just due to persecution, but that suffering is due to death, due to disease. Suffering is an integrated, is a, not integrated, it's more of an essential part of living before Jesus comes and establishes in the second coming judgment on earth. Which is why 1 Corinthians 15 says in verse 24, it, well, verse 22, it says, as in Adam all die, that's where we live. So in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the first fruits. So now we know what he's talking about, the resurrection being made alive bodily. That's what the whole second half of the chapter of 1 Corinthians 15 is about. He says, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end. When, notice that key word then, when again, when he delivers the kingdom to God, his, the father, after destroying every rule and every authority and every power. For this reason, he must reign until all, until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And don't worry, dear Christian, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. What's the order here? First coming, Jesus came and did not accomplish judgment, but accomplished salvation. Second coming, which he will accomplish judgment. And after that, after judgment has been delivered, the resurrection. When That's the point when, when, in which all Jesus' enemies, including death itself, will be put under his feet. I know this is going to be a lot to remember for the next couple of weeks as we go through Mark chapter 13, but this gives us a framework for understanding what the rule of Christ looks like and what it's going to look like in the future. Let's go to our Lord and pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have told us about the end not to cause us to be fearful, but to give us hope in the midst of our trouble. And our hope is not, is not essentially or cannot be reduced to just escaping the day of judgment. Our hope is not in how faithful we are to you. Our hope is not in how accurately we understand the Bible. The only hope in life and death is that this Messiah this Jesus, as described in this word of God, that he is able to save his people. And Lord, as we see that he is able and he is willing and that he will in the future accomplish a full salvation of his people, may you help it, this thought. May you help us to look forward to heaven. Lord, help us not to let the concerns of this present world smother out our interest in the world to come but may our thoughts of heaven provoke us to want to live for heaven to store up our treasures there our treasures there and not on earth and may we lord may your holy spirit help prepare our hearts for the day of judgment when we will escape it but we know that when we look at those around us we know they, they will not, if they do not trust in Christ. May we live in our own hearts preparing for the day of judgment, knowing that every deed, John chapter 5 says, 
will be brought to light and every good deed, every evil deed will be judged. Lord, may we live in preparation for this judgment day and may you help provoke our hearts to not passivity, but zeal for the Lord of hosts, to worship him and to see that other people are as prepared as we are for the day of judgment so that they can say alongside us, come Lord Jesus, bring justice to this world, defeat sin and death. And thank you for redeeming us so that we will not be placed under your feet, but that we will be placed at your side. It's in Jesus Christ's name that we pray. Amen.